This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. After two years of hell, two years of anger, I finally broke down and cried reading your words. I was brought to tears reading about your family's experience. I sat on my hands and worried and occasionally blamed my spouse for putting us in the thick of this legal entanglement that felt like it would never end. This slow and grueling process has placed a dark cloud of uncertainty and fear over our lives. Once we've been through this ringer, it's very difficult to carry on as before. When I started digging into my inbox last year, I thought I'd find, well, stories. Maybe some with documentation, a few screenshots, a police report or news link. What I hadn't considered was that I might find other inboxes. People with hundreds of emails all connected to a story of their own. This episode is about one of those. An inbox within my inbox. One that has been filling up for the past decade with some of the most violent and upsetting material I've seen. It starts in 2011, at the end of a bad relationship between a woman named Vivian and someone I'm just going to call S. But it would grow over the subsequent years to involve at least 20 other people, some of whom were close to Vivian and some she didn't even know, but is connected to now through a kind of shared nightmare. Here's what Vivian messaged me on Twitter in March of 2020. Hi, Sarah. I wanted to reach out, but not publicly for reasons that should be immediately clear, because a number of my colleagues and I have been dealing with a similar situation for the past decade. So I wanted to let you know that you are not alone. When I read that email, I assumed Vivian also had a false accusation story, like so many others in my inbox. But then I talked with her and began to see how much more complicated and far-reaching her story was. We met over Zoom last fall. Her two vocal cats every so often sauntered before the screen like lost extras in a movie. And a number of times when I ask about a specific date or detail, Vivian would disappear, leaving me and the cats alone while she dug into an archive of documents in another computer. I know you told me at one point you've just been like accumulating evidence. Oh, I know that I have like a whole PDF of like 500 pages of emails. So let me just look for that. Okay. And I think, yes, like this documentation thing, like it is, there's this fear that if I don't document on any given occasion, at some point I'll regret not having documented and I will feel like I made a mistake by not documenting. I felt that as well when this was happening to us. Like I felt like I have to record everything 
you know, yeah. screenshot yeah. every, you know, it just felt like, I think it, for me, it felt like one way to control it. Yeah. Vivian met S in 2007 on OkCupid. S had a cute profile photo and seemed smart. So Vivian agreed to meet up. They started dating. Then S moved in with Vivian. And when she got into graduate school in another city a couple years later, S moved with her. But the relationship felt increasingly unhealthy to Vivian. And it became even more so after she tried to break things off. S became sexually coercive, Vivian said, and aggressive. And in early 2011, Vivian decided to move out. And that's when the false accusations started. S emailed Vivian multiple times late at night, at one point threatening to tell others she'd plagiarized her entrance essay for grad school if she didn't respond. Things got bad enough that Vivian cut off contact completely. But S showed up in person at Vivian's campus. Vivian called the police, and S was arrested at least once for criminal trespass. Eventually, S moved away. But the harassment and allegations continued online. Emails filling Vivian's inbox. Social media posts about Vivian and her friends. And then, one day in 2013, almost two years after the breakup, Vivian woke up to dozens of messages. I don't remember what time I woke up. Um, I'm not an early bird, but I just remember waking up and I had text messages and some people were like, oh my God, are you okay? And they were all kind of vague. And I just remember when I asked one of my friends, hey, do you know what's going on? I keep getting all these text messages. And like, and then she forwarded me the email that had been sent to everyone in my department or at least everyone except for me. There were more than 100 people in Vivian's department and they all received the same email from S. This email was 2.53 a.m. So, um... It's like a Trump uh, tweet. Um, and so it says, I have nothing left to lose in life, so I'm going to speak the truth. Unlike a Trump tweet, the email from S was long. In it, S claimed that in 2011, when the relationship was coming to an end, Vivian sexually assaulted S. Vivian says that never happened. And in the timeline of the documents I reviewed, it seems like S only made that claim after Vivian started telling friends that S had been aggressive and manipulative during their relationship. Can you remember what went through your head when you somebody finally forwarded you that email? I was really worried. Um, I felt very embarrassed. I was very concerned about my career and kind of my professional reputation. Um, I kind of have this, or like remember this feeling of just kind of being struck by how this situation that had been affecting me and affecting the people who I was friends with my first year, right? Going from a situation in which I could sort of predict who the targets were going to be to then just ballooning. That ballooning took a number of different forms, but much of it seemed aimed at S getting what abusive partners or abusive exes often want, control. In the beginning, S only harassed Vivian and her friends those who had supported her during the breakup. But soon, S began reaching out to others, colleagues and guest speakers to the department, and those Vivian interacted with online, telling those people that Vivian was a rapist. It seemed like most people didn't believe what S was saying, but it was impossible for Vivian to be sure. As the years passed, S began threatening new people in Vivian's life, including a friend she met after the breakup, Chantel, 
who also went to grad school with Vivian. The little sound, should I mute that? I spoke to Chantel with Vivian's permission in February of this year. She told me that she and Vivian first bonded over Vivian's attempts to class up the snack table at departmental events. (laughs) She was always really big on the cheese selection for our... uh, for the snacks. What, what, what did you <laughs> Which, want as far as cheese? Just like wanting to like make sure there were good cheese options. So, you know, not like... Just cheddar. Yeah, not something basic like cheddar, right? Vivian and Chantel also gravitated towards each other because they were two of only a handful of people of color in their graduate program. Vivian is Asian American and Chantel's Black. They went out for margaritas sometimes and just talked. So Chantel knew about us and what us had been doing but it never occurred to her that she might become a target. But then one day, she was interacting with a stranger on Twitter. And I got a DM from someone that I knew from grad school. And he was like, you know who that is that you're talking to, right? And I was like, no, who is it? And he was like, oh, that's S. So my immediate reaction was like, oh, well, shit, gotta block him. That was it. S turned on me immediately. Chantel remembers that S got really angry, accusing her of being a fake feminist and supporting sexual assault. Later, a dummy Twitter account was created in Chantel's name, and posts there repeated similar accusations. In one, there was a picture of Chantel, her face scrunched up into a huge grin. But over her photo were the words, it's not sexual violence when a woman of color does it. Chantel reported the fake account to Twitter, and eventually it was taken down. She also let friends and followers online know what was up. She posted a screenshot of S's handle. Don't trust this person, she said. They're cyberstalking me. But the harassment didn't stop. Things really started to ramp up once I announced my job. In 2017, Chantel announced online that she'd received her doctorate and gotten an academic job a really good one that she was excited about. I used to have on my website uh, a, you know, widget where you could send me an email. S would go on there and fill out the widget with, like, multiple messages. So I'd get, like, five to ten emails in a day, multiple days in a row, for, like, a week or two at a time. And, you know, they started calling me names. So they... Rape hog. They would call me a fascist. They were threatening to uh, chop off my hands, throw acid on my face. Um, God. It was all really, really traumatizing. Yeah. That's so scary. I had no idea that it was that level of violence. Vivian had avoided specifics in our early conversation in part because there were so many of them, but also because they were upsetting to talk about. And it would be months before I saw some of those 500 pages from our inbox that she'd archived. So when Chantel and I talked last February, I suddenly saw that S hadn't just been harassing Vivian and others for years, or even cyber-stalking, as Chantel said. S had been terrorizing them. That terror has remained steady for Chantel ever since she accepted that job four years ago. At first, the threats mostly stemmed from Chantel's support for Vivian. But around 2017, S began to identify as trans. And after that, S also started to call Chantel and others transphobic. S threatened to send activists after Chantel, 
for supposedly inciting violence against trans women. Chantel tried not to let the threats upset her. But then she received a new email, a really disturbing one. In it, S called her a racial slur and threatened to mutilate her. I remember the next day, I was going to go on a date and like, literally just had a panic attack in the closet trying to figure out what to wear. Because it was just, I think, just like the stress of it, just like finally released. And I just freaked out and was like crying in the closet for like 30 minutes. And so I was late to the date. And so then I'm like having to explain like why I just freaked out and why I'm late. And it's like, that's a lot to put on a person who you're just meeting, you know, for an online date. So surprise, surprise, that didn't go anywhere. After a break, can anything be done to make this stop? I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge. And also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. This is The Inbox. Welcome back. When we left off, I'd ask how we might make this stop. Vivian and Chantel and others have tried. They've contacted the police in every town they've lived in since all this started, but with little success. In part because Vivian was often told at first that she needed to provide a physical address for S, which she didn't have. S has been hard to track down. But also because state laws differ on when an online threat is, well, a threat. A lot of our experience with kind of like law enforcement's part in this is not taking it seriously because they've never delivered on their threats. So it's like the emotional terrorism of it all, like apparently just isn't sufficient for like people to care. And I'm like, yeah, let someone call you racial slurs for years and tell you how they're going to maim you for years. Recently, Vivian and Chantel learned that warrants for S's arrest have been issued in at least four states. But as far as anyone knows, S now lives overseas, most likely in the Netherlands. So even with those warrants in place, there's nothing to stop S from sending violent emails, posting defamatory tweets, or threatening people online. 
At one point, a friend of Chantal's, who was also being cyberstalked by us, tried to get the Dutch police involved, but they declined as well. They said that local police in the United States had jurisdiction. I don't know. It's really frustrating because there's not a lot, I think, that the law can do about psychological terrorism, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's lawsuits that are what handled them, but those require yeah, money. Yeah, the advice that was given to me was, you know, file like a civil case. And I'm like, who has, I don't have money for that, you know? Cyberstalking, like real life stalking, happens more often to women and people of color. And some lawyers and activists have started to argue that online harassment is a civil rights issue. Because being present online, whether it's to promote yourself or socialize, is less and less a choice these days. It's how we live, work, make friends, and in some cases, fall in love. And if you're too scared to participate in that world, if you're constrained by threats, then you can't live and thrive the same way as others. And I see that, especially in Vivian. She told me that she's become much more cautious about promoting herself and her research online over the years. Because almost every time she has in the past, S has been there, in the comments section or subtweets, or in her inbox, writing about what a horrible person she is. She worries about making new friends or colleagues. Because what if S goes after those people, too? I, I think one of my, one of the source of pain is thinking about, will people regret getting to know me? Will people regret becoming my friend uh, because now they're a target? I do worry that people are going to be like, wow, like I wish that Vivian were not in my life and then I wouldn't have to deal with like this. At this point, close to 20 people in several different states have been targeted by S at one time or another. They are almost all women, people of color, or queer. And in fact, one of Vivian's former professors, a white man, told me that he's never been targeted, even though he's defended Vivian a lot over the years. And he thinks that S goes after more marginalized people on purpose. For Vivian and Chantel, that harassment is not only terrifying, it's also time-consuming. Because each time a new threat comes in, they try to log it and then send it out to the police and university staff, but also others who have been attacked in the past so that they're aware that S is at it again. When I think about like what triggered me, something that actually triggered me a lot was administrative work related to this situation. The, the sort of like additional creation of labor, that is actually one of the kind of more frustrating aspects of this is how it, it robs me of my time. I listened recently to a recording Vivian made of a 2016 meeting she had with the assistant district attorney in the county where she went to graduate school. The ADA, a woman, said she had seen personally how hard it was for victims of stalking to get help. In handling stalking cases, mm -hmm. which I handle um, quite yeah. a bit, one of the biggest challenges for people that are trying to get charges filed or trying to get a protective mm -hmm. order is um, lack of organization. Mm -hmm. My number one recommendation for building a case is mm -hmm. to be organized. The more organized you are and mm -hmm. the more you can put stuff in a timeline fashion, mm -hmm. um, the more likely it is that law enforcement and or prosecutors are going to do something about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Listening to that tape, I imagine Vivian there, her phone on the table recording the conversation as she was told that the onus was on her to document everything, organize it, present her case. 
I thought about those hundreds of pages of emails and other documentation she's now gathered. At the beginning of our conversation, I compared that act of documenting to a form of control. But S still controlled so much of her life and the lives of so many others. At one point, Vivian talked about the kids she might one day have, what she would need to do to protect them too. And I tried to imagine facing an endless future threat like that, one that you realize might not ever change. The assistant DA seemed friendly and supportive, but also realistic. She explained that stalkers can be hard to stop, in part because they can become obsessive. But another issue is that jail time for cyberstalking just isn't that long, at least at the state level. And the fear is that a person like S will go to jail for a few months and come out even angrier. One thing you could do, the assistant DA told Vivian, is get the FBI involved. But most likely that would only happen if Vivian could make a compelling case. Um, even though it seems like a tremendous pain in the ass, mm-hmm. um, I think that is your best shot at getting something done is to be organized and clear because they don't want to be the ones to put all the pieces together. Because when somebody can see the big picture, they're like, oh my God, this is a horrible, Mm -hmm. horrible thing. Mm -hmm. But if you have everything in separate reports and they have to go through and Mm -hmm. then, you know, connect all the dots themselves, it's just less likely that they're going to do anything. Yeah. A number of S's victims have tried to get the FBI involved. In addition to Vivian, there was a woman in Colorado who pressured them to open a case. A friend of Chantel's contacted a police officer who was in touch with the FBI, too. But the person who finally got their attention, at least as far as I can tell, was a woman named Letitia. She was a friend of Vivian and Chantel's from grad school. And starting in 2020, S began to target her directly calling her transphobic, in part, it seems, because Letitia once accidentally referred to S as he on Twitter, not knowing that S now identified as trans. S emailed doctored photos of Letitia, who is Black, with a Klan hood on her head. And eventually, S began threatening Letitia's department as well. The one that, like, really scared me was, like, if Letitia isn't fired by this date, there will be incendiary devices, like placed in your department. And so I really thought that, like, at that point, it was going to get taken seriously. There had been a deadly school shooting at Letitia's university more than a decade before. And perhaps because of that history, her administrators reached out to the FBI, and the FBI responded. Letitia was put in contact with an agent, and for a little while, things felt hopeful. But then a year passed. What have you heard specifically from the police or FBI? What sort of hope do you have? What are you thinking about whether or not this will end? We're working on it. That's the company line. And I'm like, I feel like y'all say that every single time, and yet I don't see anything being done. And I'm like, what is there left to investigate? You know who the person is. You say that you're aware of where they are. You've read the emails, the tweets, you've spoken with all of us. What is left to investigate? The only thing I can think of is that they need one of us to die for this to become a a situation, and I don't want that to happen. It should not have to go that far. It's gone far enough. It's gone on long enough.
Letitia got one of those emails from the FBI recently, saying that the case is still open, that they're still working on it. But Vivian got a separate email not long ago, letting her know that agents in another region had looked into what us had been doing, and they could not, and I quote, develop a federal charge. In other words, who knows what's going on, or if this will ever end. The FBI, for their part, refused to answer questions about what they are or are not doing about us. I think about all these email updates and their inboxes and how much different they are from mine. Vivian with her archive of hate, Chantal and her collection of racist messages, and Letitia with these updates from the FBI always saying the same thing. And then, every once in a while, a new message from S reaches one of them. And it all begins again. Vivian told me she wanted to tell her story here because she has no idea what else to do. But she doesn't have a lot of hope that it will help. Chantel said the same. In fact, she thinks it might make things worse. That S might hear this and get even angrier. But Chantel said she talked to me to support her friend. Letitia decided to tell her story in part because she shares a birthday with Zora Neale Hurston, who once said, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. But none of them want S to go to jail or even be punished. Vivian used to be in love with S. And Chantel told me that she knows S is a hurt person, that hurt people hurt people. But at this point, they just want to be left alone. Near the end of my conversation with Vivian, I ask her a question that I thought about a lot during my and Marta's ordeal. It's one of those questions we ask ourselves when we feel trapped by circumstance or someone else. Do you ever think about like how your life might have been different if you hadn't known this person? I think that at this point, I'm just kind of like, I just, I just reject this idea that people have harm-free lives. And it's unfortunate that I have had a life of harm, but so many other people do. And I think that maybe kind of reworking that would be accepting that people have lives with harm and starting from that assumption. All of the women of color I know from my program have had some kind of devastating thing happen to them. And so I think that what helps me not focus on what was lost is just kind of rejecting that paradigm in the first place. There was something so smart but also heartbreaking in what Vivian was saying. That one of the ways she's learned to cope is to focus on the reality that no one's life is free from harm. So hers never would have been, even without us. But there's something jarring about that too. I realized how committed I'd been to the possibility of finding a solution to S, some alternative future for the people S has harmed. Marta and I found a way to handle our version of S, someone I referred to as Jay in my story. And hearing from people like Vivian in my inbox, I often feel guilty for the peace we've been able to find. But I also feel so keenly that none of this should be happening to any of them. And I want to change reality. I want solutions but I still don't know what they are. Up next, I speak to a couple who did manage to find resolution. In the final episode of The Inbox, the story of Ken and Mark.
The Inbox is a project of the 11th from Pineapple Street Studios. It's written by Sarah Vereen and produced by Sarah Vereen, Janelle Pfeiffer, and Maria Robin Somerville, with editing by Joel Lovell. The 11th team is Leela Day, Joe Lovell, Eric Menel, Janelle Pfeiffer, Chloe Persinos, and me, Kristen Torres. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Wise Berman. Our engineers are Raj Majika, Hannes Brown, and Debbie Sumner. Fact-checking by Sarah Ivry. Music by Raj Majika, Blank Forms, and Blue Dot Sessions. Sales and marketing by Cadence 13. Artwork by Jonathan Conda. Thanks for listening. <laughs>